Welcome to Dental Dilemmas, brought to you by the ADA Council on Ethics, Bylaws, and Judicial Affairs. And I am your second season host, Dr. Ansley Depp. Today, using the ADA's Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct, we will analyze one of the Council's most popular ethical moments. Today's question is posed by Dr. Beverly Largent in a previously published article from July of 2006. So let's get right to today's ethical moment question. My new neighbor is an old high school friend and recently divorced. We have renewed our friendship and he has asked me to treat his son who visits on weekends and holidays. I have examined the child and in the course of conversation learned that my neighbor has visitation rights but not custody. I am concerned that he does not have the legal ability to give consent for the child's extensive treatment needs. I am also concerned, since I've started to see the boy, that if I now refuse to treat him, I will have abandoned a patient and that one weekend the child will end up needing emergency care. What should I do? All right, so today we have Beverly Largent. And Beverly, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you practiced? I practiced pediatric dentistry as a solo dentist for 37 years in Paducah, Kentucky. I celebrated my 56th wedding anniversary last week. I have two adult children, six grandchildren, and two great grands. Uh, and prior to being a dentist, I practiced dental hygiene for 10 years. I did not know that, actually. Yeah. Let's see. You're being very kind to yourself. I want to let everybody know that Dr. Largent was the first female president in our state of Kentucky, which gave me big shoes to follow. And you also were a president of the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry. Is that correct? That is correct. The presidency of the Kentucky Dental Association was very pleasant. I had a lot of supporters. And so I think that the shoes that need to be filled for the, the people coming up are those supporters. It was a very great experience. After that, I was on the Council of Ethics, Bylaws, and Judicial Affairs for the ADA. And after that, I became Secretary Treasurer of the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry. And in that organization, the, you start as the Secretary Treasurer and eventually become the President. So I did serve as president of that organization. And then I became the president of the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry's foundation, where I was president for three years. And I tell everyone that spending other people's money was the most fun I've ever had. Oh, I love that. Spending <laughs> other people's money is yeah. fun. I agree. So you also were the editor of the Kentucky Dental Association Journal, is that correct? And you just retired from that, I believe. Correct. I was the editor for about almost 10 years, and I felt that it was time for a new view, a more current view for a younger person to be there. During the time that I was the editor, I did receive three awards for my editorials, and I was very, very pleased with that. That was a cash award, and I was able to give that to the foundation. So it helped a lot of people. 
Yes. And to our listeners, I will tell you, she did do some excellent writing, which is kind of why we're here today. We're going to be talking about one of your ethical moments. So can you tell us why you selected dentistry as a career path? Well, I'm not quite sure. I think mostly I was <laughs> at the right place at the right time. I was in hygiene and then decided that I would return to school to go to dental school. And my husband was a great supporter. And at the time I entered dental school, there was a big focus on women in dentistry. So that was very helpful to me as well. Yeah, I agree. So for our listeners, you were on the Council Ethics, Bylaws, and Judicial Affairs when the Ethical Moment articles began. Do you remember the catalyst for how they started? I'm not really certain. I, I tried to recall that, and I believe that we had three dental students who came to give testimony to our council, and their questions then caused us to decide on the ethical moment that that would be a good way to let people know what the big words meant. So as far as beneficence and veracity, I think that those are pretty far removed from the typical dentist vocabulary. So that was our effort to show what the, the code of ethics meant. I think that's great. I'm helping out with the ethics course at University of Louisville School of Dentistry right now. And the younger dentists are actually very interested in ethics and the questions. So I think that when you all started this, it has turned into a very relevant topic. So I want to say thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree. So let's dig into your article a little bit. Which of the principles of the ADA Code of Ethics do you feel is predominantly involved when you are faced with this ethical dilemma you wrote about? Or maybe you can even give us a little background. Did you ever have this ethical dilemma happen to you? Well, that ethical dilemma was the reason that I wrote the article. And I did have a non-custodial parent present with a child in an emergency situation and I think that, if I recall correctly, the kid tipped me off and said that his dad came and got him from school and it caused a lot of trouble. So then we started asking questions and found out, you know, the dad was very forthcoming that he did bring the child out of school and he was able to get in our office, which the policy at that time was, if your child's in pain, you bring them right now. Mm -hmm. So he picked the child up from school and brought him to my office. And as things evolved, we found that he was not the custodial parent. So that is why I wrote the article. It was a problem that I had had in my office. And I think that autonomy is probably the code that is most important there because uh, the patient deserves the right to make their own decisions. And obviously an underage child, the parent has to make the decisions for them. And in yeah, this situation, we had a non-custodial parent. Uh, so at that point, I spoke with my attorney and he told me that all parents had the right to choose treatment for their children. And, I, you know, I questioned him, are you sure? And he said, I'm sure. And we hung up the phone. And then about 10 minutes later, he called me back and said, don't touch that kid. So that was the dilemma that I was in. The dad had done a lot to get this child to have dental treatment. 
and it was eventually in about four days it was concluded and the mother and the child returned to my office and the treatment was completed now obviously i never saw them again and i assumed that everyone concerned was embarrassed and probably were concerned about being considered negligent of the child's treatment. So, so legal issues obviously were involved with this and a conflict between some of the ethical principles in this point. So how did you deal with reconciling some of the ethical principles with treating this patient properly and obeying by the custodial versus non-custodial rules? Well, I think that not very often are we as dentists faced with a life or death situation. So a dire emergency, this child had an ongoing problem that had not been attended to. So that I think was, that was an issue for me. If this treatment were postponed two or three days, it would have been okay. So that was one of the things that I felt was important. So even though I wasn't treating this child, perhaps in the very best way possible, I I did not solve his problem immediately. I also did not feel that I was putting him in jeopardy. And the other thing was that this dad was very, very adamant that the child have treatment. So I felt comfortable. The dad found an attorney. The attorney advised the mother to have this done. And his immediate problem was resolved. So So, even though it wasn't resolved in what some people might have considered a, an appropriate time lapse, it did get you know, it wasn't treated immediately, but it was treated appropriately. Do you feel like there's one or more of the remaining principles that conflicts with autonomy? Yeah, I I think that this child could have best been treated when he was brought to me initially. However, given the fact that we didn't have the autonomous person present, and the fact that the child did not have a life-threatening or a potentially serious problem at the time, we were able to postpone it for a few days. And I also felt very positive in that this dad was willing to take whatever steps he could to have the child treated. So it did work out, although it did present some problems. So sometimes beneficence or do good can conflict with the autonomy because we've got to also consider some of the legal issues that are at the forefront of the problem. I can see how that would conflict. Right. And, you know, it's hard. You can't please all the people all the time. It's very difficult to uh, thread that needle. And you wrote about this in 2006. Did anything change in the way you practiced over your last 15 years that maybe you would have dealt with this differently? I probably would not have dealt with it differently. There were no questions on my form that asked if if you were the custodial parent. So I'm pretty sure I've probably treated children whose parents were not the custodial parents. But one of the things that we did when someone called and said, now I'm going to bring little Johnny, but his dad's going to have to pay the bill. And so our response always was, if you bring the child, 
you are responsible for the bill. There's no question. We're not going to bill another person. So that oftentimes brought in the other parent. You know, sometimes these people had joint custody. Sometimes, you know, there's never an issue if I saw the parent who was the custodial parent. But that is one thing that we changed. Another thing that changed over time was that I became more confident of my convictions that I needed the custodial parent. So if I had any inkling that I was dealing with somebody that did not have the autonomy appropriately, then I had no problem in telling them. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that changed. It certainly has gotten a little bit more difficult dealing with these situations. How did you approach dealing with treatment planning for a child of divorced parents? Did you discuss the treatment regarding their child separately with each parent, or did you try to bring them together? Did you keep the child present for the discussion? It happened in all those ways. Typically, we did a treatment plan for the parent who brought the child. And then we gave the other parent an opportunity to come for a treatment plan. And in my office, I had a lead dental assistant who did a lot of treatment plan presentations. So they were allowed to come at their convenience. My only uh, stipulation was that they did call the office in advance to make sure we were there because those people were always quite busy. So they would come. The assistant would go over the treatment plan. Uh, she would uh, witness the signature, and they were given an opportunity to speak with me if they wanted to. Now, whether or not the child was in the room kind of depended on the questions I needed to ask the parent that brought the child, which was typically the mother and sometimes the stepmother or the grandmother. So if things got a little dicey, I'd ask the child to go play with the games out front, and we'd leave the door to the conference room open, and we would proceed. Did you ever have an instance where you needed to contact an attorney or ask for a custodial agreement where maybe perhaps you were not able to even treat the child? Did anything such as that happen? Yeah, I, I've had uh, most often ask if there was any doubt. I, I always ask for the custodial agreement or if it was a grandmother, you know, uh, your guardianship agreement, whatever. But yeah, I did that routinely. Um, most of the time I did was not forced to involve an attorney during the time that I was treating the child. I used my attorney more, like we discussed earlier, to uh, guide me in areas that I was not sure of, you know, like legal matters. So that, you know, I didn't usually, uh, I tried not to uh, cause more conflict between the parents. Now, you know, I have had situations where my records were subpoenaed because I asked for it. I asked for the subpoena. I, my attorneys have helped me tremendously. I was involved with a case, a missing child case, and the grandfather demanded the records. And of course, he was not a custodial parent. So I called my attorney and I said, look, you know, this kid's missing. They're searching for her. He wants the records. He's, he's not the custodian of the records. What do I do? So my attorney very generously found a officer of the law who came to get the records. 
So he felt that even though it wasn't a custodial person in this situation, if I believe a state trooper came and got the records that I would not be in any legal problems. I think these are great discussions. Like I said, in the beginning of the interview, this has come up in the ethics class that I work with at the school. And sometimes there are no black and white answers to some of these questions. So I love that we're having this discussion. What's the best advice you would give a new or younger practicing dentist to assist them in dealing with these difficult issues when it comes to treating children of divorced parents? Well, I would say find your attorney first thing. I mean, as well as your accountant, your questions are not going to be so great that you would need a person who is specializing in family law. Although I did get to know the family court judges quite well during my time, you know, find an attorney that you can call on the phone and they know who you are and you can ask these silly questions because I'm sure they sound well in that particular case that I talked about earlier that that attorney got an education as well. But find an attorney, someone that you trust in that you can call and ask questions because these questions come up when you least expect it. And the other thing I would tell them is to trust your gut. If you think there's something not quite right here, there probably is something not quite right. I love that. I have mentioned that many times to the students. And I think we all need to mention that in cases of emergency, we are not held to some of these standards. So when there is a true emergency, our ethics as well as our legal system should back us up in that situation. Right. I agree. Changing directions just a little bit, you and I met as some of the early females in leadership in our state of Kentucky. So you were the first female president of Kentucky and our first female editor of our journal. So I see you as a mentor in leadership for females, not just in our state, but certainly actually in our country. So were there any ethical principles that you found particularly relevant in your leadership position and uh, maybe any advice for the new, the new generation of female leadership? Well, I think I, veracity is the thing that comes to mind. I recently had a conversation with one of my old mentors who was a gentleman. And he said, one thing we all knew about you, Beverly, is that when you, you didn't talk a lot, but when you stated something, we knew it was the truth and that you would stand behind it. And I think that that is really very, very important. It doesn't matter how your colleagues interact. I think even today, I think that there are issues, male, female issues. And I think a lot of that has to do with how you perceive your priorities. And I think women perceive priorities differently than men do. So I think there's still a little distrust or underlying, it depends on the age of the person as well. So veracity would be the main thing that I would think of. And then beneficence, that is important too, that you try to do good. And many times people in leadership are there because they are quote unquote climbing the ladder. So if you're always trying to do good and you're truthful, I think you'll come out on top. And that is why I loved you and you were a mentor for me because I could not agree more. When you go into leadership, if you you find that you stay true to veracity, I think 
people see that in you and know that what you were speaking of is the truth. So I could not agree more with that. Thank you. <laughs> so what does being an ethical dentist mean to you? And how did you apply the ADA code to your everyday practice? Well, I think the, the thing that I tried to think of was being honest. And to give people, a, you know, as I said earlier, I didn't want to rock the boat. When people were having problems in a family, I didn't want to add to those problems. The other thing that I tried to do was honestly accept patients where they were on their healthcare journey. So it was very, very difficult for me to treat a child with multiple devastating cavities without coming across or thinking of the parent as a negligent bad parent. So I think honesty again and trying to do good so do good to keep that child in my practice to have everything treated because if you belittled the parent, they wouldn't bring them back. I think those, again, the honesty and beneficence were That's the right. two guiding things in my practice. I love it. And in regard to practicing ethically, considering the ADA code, what advice would you give to a recently graduated new dentist? Well, first of all, I'd look up all those big words so I knew what I was talking about. And then I would realize, or my advice would be to realize that practicing these codes takes practice. So the first time that you call social services on a child, you shake in your boots. And then as you do that and you know when to do it, then it becomes beneficence. You're doing good rather than causing a riot. <laughs> so I think that my biggest takeaway is that you have to practice all of these code of ethics and you have to look at them and how they affect your practice. And then you have to do what's right, but it takes practice. They're not simple and it doesn't become a habit overnight. That is amazing. That's amazing advice. I love that. I love it. Well, do you have anything final to share about this article that you wrote? No, not really. I think it's really the tip of the iceberg. It was a very graphic article so that people understood the situation. But I saw so many little children whose parents or grandparents or other relatives brought them for treatment. And to, for me to have to say to them, you know, I can't treat your child. Many times people didn't want to give guardianship to children, to grandparents because of financial reasons. Any financial support that those children received, they didn't want going to the grandparents. So through the years, I learned that you can get limited guardianship so that you can treat the children's medical needs, but you don't necessarily get their money. Again, this was the tip of the iceberg as far as I was concerned. Sebja, we love it when ethical moments get responses. And you actually got a response on this article, pushing back a little bit. And most people would find that maybe upsetting. But I think it's amazing when we get responses, because it means that people are thinking, and they are addressing the ethics in the situation. Yeah, I agree. And I, I've, I've had pushback a lot. That doesn't particularly bother me. But yes, I have had people tell me that I was crazy, that 
if there was a child in their office who had a problem, they'd take care of it. Perhaps that follows their code, but I followed mine. No, I love that. And that's what ethics is. Yeah, so, right. Well, I have enjoyed this interview. It has been wonderful to get to speak with you today. And I hope to see you soon. Thank you, Ainsley. It's been a joy and good luck in your future endeavors. Thank you so much. A final note about the episode. Please see the show notes for a link to the original article and stay tuned for future episodes. At the close of the episode, continue listening to hear the sections of the ADA's Principles of Ethics and Code of Professional Conduct, pertinent to the original Ethical Moment article. This article discusses all five sections of the ADA's Principles of Ethics and Code of Professional Conduct. These sections are as follows. Section one, principle, patient autonomy. The dentist has a duty to respect the patient's rights to self-determination and confidentiality. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to treat the patient according to the patient's desires within the bounds of accepted treatment and to protect the patient's confidentiality. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include involving patients in treatment decisions in a meaningful way, with due consideration being given to the patient's needs, desires, and abilities, and safeguarding the patient's privacy. Section two principle, non-malfeasance. The dentist has a duty to refrain from harming the patient. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to protect the patient from harm. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include keeping knowledge and skills current, knowing one's own limitations, and when to refer to a specialist or other professional, and knowing when and under what circumstances delegation of patient care to auxiliaries is appropriate. We also use the Section 3 principle of beneficence. The dentist has a duty to promote the patient's welfare. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to act for the benefit of others. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligation is service to the patient and the public at large. The most important aspect of this obligation is the competent and timely delivery of dental care within the bounds of clinical circumstances presented by the patient, with due consideration being given to the needs desires, and values of the patient. The same ethical considerations apply whether the dentist engages in fee-for-service, managed care, or some other practice arrangement. Dentists may choose to enter into contracts governing the provision of care to a group of patients. However, contract obligations do not excuse dentists from their ethical duty to put the patient's welfare first. Section 4, Principle Justice. The dentist has a duty to treat people fairly. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to be fair in their dealings with patients, colleagues, and society. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include dealing with people justly and delivering dental care without prejudice. 
In its broadest sense, this principle expresses the concept that the dental profession should actively seek allies throughout society on specific activities that will help improve access to care for all. And section five principle, veracity. The dentist has a duty to communicate truthfully. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to be honest and trustworthy in their dealings with people. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include respecting the position of trust inherent in the dentist-patient relationship, communicating truthfully and without deception, and maintaining intellectual integrity. Remember to keep ethics at the forefront of your daily practice and stay tuned as Seabjud decodes dental dilemmas. This is your host, Ansley Depp, signing off.